He is risen. So this morning I brought something with me um, that I've had in my garage for a bit. Um, eventually I'm going to do something with it. But I wanted to use it uh, today to illustrate, I think, a reality that is true about all of our lives. In a room like this, on a day like this, there are probably many, many things in our lives that are heavy. Um, I would imagine way back in the day, boy, people, if they could have had a wheelbarrow, um, would be an amazing thing. Wheelbarrows are great. I know when you look at me, I have really, you know, big muscles and stuff, but uh, you can do a whole lot more with this. Because, because of the wheel and, and because of the balance and all of that. And, and one of the things I want to share today as we begin to remind us of the purpose of this weekend that we celebrate. For some of us, we bring spiritual wheelbarrows even in a room like this this morning. Heavy things in our life and we push them around kind of everywhere we go. And so sometimes some of those things are heavy and they take different shapes and, and, and we, you know, maybe stuff from childhood, it may be some other kind of thing. You know, some of them look like this, they're long and they're more sharp and they're pointy and they kind of hang out of our wheelbarrow and sometimes some of the stuff in our life is outside and we carry this stuff around and it pokes other people. But it's really stuff that's inside of us. Some looks like this and some things are smaller. And what I want to remind you and I of this morning is that if you're carrying heaviness of life this morning into this room, I want to remind you that the cross and the resurrection tell you and I to stop that. To come to the cross, to come to the empty tomb. And to, if I could do that this morning, but I don't want to cause a mess to just dump these things out right there where God did the work. We have all learned in our own life what it's like for us to try to do that work. We don't find the freedom that we need, but when we come to what He did because of who He is, then you and I can find the freedom that we need in our lives. So what I want to do this morning is I want to um, this is my 15th um, Easter here at LifePoint. And uh, because you're not in the role that I am, after 15 straight years of doing this, you get to a place of, we've talked about so many different things. So should we look at this a little bit different this morning? And so that's what we're going to do. What I want to do this morning is in and around the resurrection are pieces of evidence internally in the scripture to speak of the truth that Jesus did rise from the dead. Now, in our culture today, there are many who, who have all kinds of philosophies and ideas that this did not happen. But I want to speak to believers this morning. And if you're a skeptic this morning, I want to speak to you as well. And I want you to consider, along with all of us, what the Bible has to say internally about the evidences around the resurrection. I read a story then in the um, Italian Alps, they have a um, walkway um, where you can walk up in the Alps and the beautiful scenery that's there, and you can do the stations of the cross. Many of us are familiar with what those are, and, and so um, for years and years, people did this, and somebody had put it up in the, in the Alps up there, and year after year, every Easter, people would come, and they would celebrate this. One day, though, 
a group of people had come through and they'd all stopped at the last station. They'd come to the cross and people were milling around there. People were contemplating. People were praying. But one guy began to look around and he noticed not far from the cross that there was some brush that had grown up. And as he kind of looked below and he was able to look beyond, he recognized that there might be another path on the other side. And so he walked over to the brush and sure enough, he could see that he could push his way through that. And there was another old path that had kind of been covered over, but it was evident that there was a path there. And he followed it along and he came to actually the last station when people had made another station to be the last station. And what he found was is there was a station there that represented the empty tomb. You see, over years, people had just stopped at the cross, which, by the way, I'll encourage you, do that often and think about that. But the cross has greater significance this morning because Jesus rose from the dead. Lots of people died 2,000 years ago on crosses all over the Roman Empire. But there was one cross in particular outside the city of Jerusalem on a hill where God himself bore our sin. And that cross is significant because of who hung there and that he bore our sin in his body. He became our substitute, bearing the wrath of God so that you and I don't have to bear that. And on the third day he rose. And can I remind you, he is still alive. He is still alive. And so... These kind of things like this need to be dumped at the cross and the resurrection. Why? Because the Savior has bore these things that we are bearing. So come to him. Dump them out. So this morning, if you would, we're going to, are y'all, are y'all ready? We're going to look at multiple Bible passages. Are y'all, you got your fingers ready? Okay. So we're going to look at, some of the pieces, unique pieces of evidence around the resurrection. And the first one is in Matthew 27, if you would go there. Matthew 27. Some of these we'll spend a little bit more time with than others. Verse 50. This one happened on Friday afternoon, but it carried its way into the weekend, and I've always found it fascinating. Matthew 27, verse 50. So Jesus is on the cross, and it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the very top to the bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And the tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So what I want to do first of all this morning is is give you this piece of evidence surrounding the resurrection of Jesus that I, is, is amazing. So he dies at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. The sky had been dark for a while. We just read there when he died, earthquake happened, rocks were split in two. 
And in and around Jerusalem were people from the Old Testament who had died and their bodies and bones were in graves. Their tombs literally opened up and they got out and hung out. And it says, we kind of we, we don't really know fully what happened Friday afternoon. But the text says that after his resurrection, they came into the city and were walking around in the city and talked with people. Now, I want to remind you and I this morning that we affirm that we don't need any more revelation from God to, for us to understand everything that we need to do for life and godliness. But occasionally, I wish there was like one more sentence that could go, could, could you talk a little bit more about that thing? Think about this for a minute. Old Testament saints that had longed for the coming of Jesus, longing for the Messiah to come, came out of their graves who had been buried maybe for hundreds of years, walked around the city and talked to people. How powerful is the death and the resurrection of Jesus? And in this room this morning, many of us can attest that He has done the same thing in our lives. That because of His death and because of His resurrection, we have spiritually come alive. We have been raised from the dead. And we have an eternal life and we have a security because of who He is and what He has done on our behalf. We don't know where these Old Testament saints went again. We have literally no idea. But they walked around the city and they talked to people. And this is an evidence of people, not just those, the disciples and those in and around the tomb, but this is evidence of those all through the city who had come alive and were talking to people. Now I want you to go to John chapter 19, please. And we're going to look at the second piece of evidence internally, John 19. And I want to talk about Two men in particular that we see here, Joseph of Arimathea and a guy named Nicodemus. John 19, if you would follow me, beginning in verse 38 through 42. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews... Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now most crucified victims in and around uh, ancient Rome were, and throughout the kingdom were left on the cross most of the time for many days. They would uh, allow the animals and other elements to deal with the bodies as they continued to hang on the cross. But at times, um, you could ask a Roman authority, say, that's my son or that's my father. Could we take them down from the cross and bury them? 
Now it's interesting that the text indicates to us that Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich ruling leader, most likely of the Sanhedrin, influential, knew Pilate. So they, this was not the first conversation. So he goes to Pilate and says, I would like to take down the body of Jesus and can I bury it? And so Pilate allows him to do that. Somehow Nicodemus, who had come to Jesus in John chapter 3, knew that Joseph was going to do this. He joins, uh, Nicodemus joins Joseph. Nicodemus brings 75 pounds worth of spices and this kind of ointment kind of stuff that they would put on uh, the cloth, the burial cloths of people that were buried. And so they go, two of the Marys come. And so as Joseph and Nicodemus are, are preparing Jesus' body to be laid into the tomb, one of the texts says that two Marys were there and they were watching what they were doing and they saw Jesus' body be put into the tomb. So here you have two leading religious leaders, Joseph and Nicodemus, note this, who know exactly where Jesus' body was laid. The tomb belonged to Joseph. Nicodemus, again, a respectful person, both followers of Jesus, not publicly yet, but please note, now they are publicly following Jesus. Joseph goes, I would like to get the body down. They're identifying themselves with the one who was crucified on this day as a criminal, whom the religious leaders had been behind pushing to get Jesus to be killed. So they take the body, they lay the body in the tomb, and you have two very prominent, well-known religious leaders identifying themselves with Jesus who know where the body is. By the way, let me add to that layer. There were more people that Friday night and that weekend who knew exactly where the tomb was. There were 23 total people on that first weekend who knew where the tomb of Jesus was. There's going to be some soldiers standing guard. We'll talk about them in a moment. There would have been 16 of them. They knew where the tomb was. Now, we don't know how many, so we can't, we, we can't put a number to it, but there would have been more than 23. But for 20, we know for sure some of the religious leaders would have known where Jesus was buried. But we know for sure 23 people knew where Jesus had been buried. 16 soldiers and seven others. Joseph knew, Nicodemus knew, the two Marys knew. On that morning, another woman's coming with the, on, on Easter Sunday morning, the first one, Resurrection Sunday. A woman named Salome is also coming with the Marys. She knew where the tomb was. When they see Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and they go back and tell the disciples, we've seen the Lord, Peter and John go and, and run exactly. They didn't have a GPS, didn't pull up their phone. They ran exactly to where the tomb was. They knew where Jesus had been buried. And so I want you to note this morning that one of the, a second piece of evidence confirming that Jesus had risen from the dead is that 23 people we know of for sure in the text knew where the body had been laying. Pilate could have come at any time and said, hey, Nicodemus, I heard the story that this guy, Jesus, has, his body is missing. Can you show me where the tomb was? Joseph, Nicodemus, anybody else, they could have showed Pilate where it was. They could have shown any of the other religious leaders where Jesus' body had lain. 
So we know of 23, likely for sure more, knew exactly where Jesus' body was put, and yet nobody could come up with a body and nobody could come up with explanation other than lies and extortion and paying of money. One more thing before we move on to the next piece of evidence that I find very fascinating as well and interesting. What made the difference in Joseph and Nicodemus' life? What made the difference? The cross. They were secret disciples before the cross. Something happened on that day. Did they watch at a distance Jesus die? Did they hear him say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing? Something happened on that day that they didn't want to be secret anymore. They wanted to identify with who Jesus is. And so Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of spices and aloes to anoint the body of Jesus. And Joseph goes to Pilate, who had sentenced Jesus to die, and said, I'd like to take the body down. Will you give it to me? And so here they are, changed by the cross. Maybe there's somebody in the room this morning. And you're Joseph and Nicodemus. You believe, you affirm who Jesus is, but, but you've never let your faith run free and open. And because of the cross, now Joseph and Nicodemus are like, we're going to let this not be secret anymore. We're going to identify our lives with the crucified Jesus. Maybe today is the day to let the fear in the opinions of others about your faith, let it go and come to the cross, come to the empty tomb. And let the empty tomb fill your life with the presence of Jesus as you place your faith in who He is. So a second piece of evidence is not only dead men walking, saints walking. Secondly, influential and known men bury Jesus. But let's talk about the soldiers. I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 27 now, please. And go to verse... 62. Matthew 27, verse 62. So Matthew records for us this. So the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that How that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So these soldiers would have been put in place throughout the weekend. From what we understand, if you can kind of look, if you look up here, kind of you can see the, the wood on the wall back here. Let's say that's where the tomb is, where the stone was. There would have been 16 soldiers. Four of them would have been very near the tomb in front of it. And then there would have been some of the others at times, the other 12 would be kind of a a semicircle out in front. 
And then after a while, they would, um, from what we learned from Roman history, they would um, alternate. There would be four standing guard and 12 resting because they would have to be on duty. Somebody would, at least four, would have to be on duty the whole time. So, so beginning on Friday night, you've got 16 soldiers there. So it, sometimes all of them are there. At other times, 12 arresting, four on duty. And they would do this for every four hours. So every four hours, there would be alternate four new ones. Four would rest. Next four hours, four new ones. Those four would rest. And so here they are guarding the tomb at this place. But something interesting happened. When the women got there on that Sunday morning, there were no guards there. There were no soldiers that were present because just before the women arrived, they had become like dead men and had fallen when the angel came down and rolled away the stone. Something had happened supernatural and powerful before they got there. Matthew records it this way in 2811. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said to them, Tell people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. By the way, so you understand that, 16 soldiers all falling asleep at the same time. So that's the story we want you to tell everybody. So here's some money. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is what's known as, in a sense, the stolen body theory and its connection to the soldiers. I have three questions about the stolen body theory. Can I pose them to you this morning? Here's the first one. Death penalty to any Roman soldier that did not carry forth with their duty. Not a single one of them faced the death penalty. Governments have been covering up things for a long time. Here's another cover-up of hiding the truth and hiding what is there. Here's the second thing. At one point in time in our house, we had seven people living there. During the night, there was never a moment when all seven people are asleep at the same time. How in the world do men in danger of the death penalty all fall asleep, 16 of them, all night long, and have no clue that somebody has come to steal the body. Ridiculous. There's not a way that they all, 16, would have fallen asleep at the same time and would have had no idea. Here's my third one. Since they were all asleep, how did they know that a body had been stolen? They didn't see anything. There wasn't anything to see. So this thing that people have tried to explain away called the stolen body theory of Jesus is not realistic. It is not true. So the soldiers give evidence that Jesus' body was no longer there. It wasn't, wasn't there. Not only that, 
But if you'll picture the stone back there, the stone was round in those days. Um, they have found some things through other places in Rome, but particularly in Israel, they have found mainly these round stones. Some of them were kind of square stones that had a, a round uh, Lego kind of piece that would come out and you would put the stone into another stone and it would kind of seal it that way. Um, that's not the description that we get um, in regard to the scripture about the text. And so the picture is um, they would cut, and we'll, we'll talk more about this in just a second, but they would about five, four to five foot tall would be a doorway and then there would be a round stone that would be put there. But I want to talk about what was on the round stone. Now, I don't know what it's like in your house. Um, one of my older children is in the room this morning. I have stuff that my bank account bought, my money that I use, that's no longer in my garage that's at my children, adult children's house. They didn't ask me if they could borrow it. I think that's called stealing. Is it not still? Is that still called stealing? So I had ropes in my garage at one point in time and couldn't find a single one of them last night or this morning. So I think I, they're in Princeton, aren't they, probably? Yeah, I was like, yeah, whatever. <clears throat> so here's what they would do. When it talks about that there was a seal on the tomb, I want you to picture, picture a thick rope that's stretched out this way horizontally. And on one end of the round uh, stone there would be the rope, and there would be clay that would have an insignet ring that would be put into that. In the middle, they would do put the clay again with the rope, and they would attach this rope to the stone, and it would go to the to other, other end of the round stone, and it would be there. So if the stone was ever moved because it was put around and connected to that, the rope would break, the clay would break, and it would make noise. Again, another just subtle evidence that if somebody moved the stone, the rope was broken, the seals were broken, somebody would have heard this. And nobody seems to have heard this. Nobody seems to be aware of this. So not only Joseph and Nicodemus, not only dead saints walking around the weekend of the resurrection, not only the soldiers, but the seal at the tomb gives evidence that it was, that it was broken. So the stone had been moved and Jesus had come out. Let me give another one. I want to talk about the city of Jerusalem itself. They began on that Sunday to speak about that Jesus' body could not be found. So they began to proclaim, He dies on Friday afternoon. He's put in the tomb by Friday night. They begin to proclaim on Sunday, the women do. John and Peter run to the tomb. Two guys walk with Jesus to the road to Emmaus. They go all the way back from Emmaus, back in Jerusalem, find the apostles and say, we've been with the Lord all afternoon talking to him. He's been sharing scripture with us. They begin to proclaim in Jerusalem the very day that Jesus rose from the dead. They began to proclaim this. And I want to just for a second highlight, we can today, I don't advise this either, but if we wanted to hide a body, we could throw it into a car and drive away real fast. Do you know how hard it would be in the first century to take a body that has 75 pounds of aloe wrapped up 
or, or not wrapped up and hide that and get it gone and not be seen and not be caught. So even the city of Jerusalem gives evidence with all the eyewitnesses who knew where the tomb was. And it was even begun to say, we just read it a while ago, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So it had begun to be talked about that the tomb was empty, this lie and story that Jesus' body had been stolen had begun to be talked about. And so I just want to remind us this morning, even the the city of Jerusalem cries out that there was no evidence that the body had been stolen. As a matter of fact, the evidence in the city of Jerusalem was is that the body was gone and he had risen from the dead. Let me talk about the stone just for a moment. Now I want you to go to your right to Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, beginning in verse 1. Mark 16, 1 through 4. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, when they got there, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. Verse 5, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I want to talk about this stone just for a moment that had been rolled away and that was originally on Friday night, put in front of the tomb. So John Mark in Mark 16 indicates to us that when the women go to the tomb on Sunday morning, they fully expected the tomb to look exactly like it did on Friday night. Soldiers, rope and seals, signet ring in its place, guards there, Everything they anticipated was, was going to be the case. They were still expecting when they showed up on that Sunday morning to find a dead body. That's what they were coming. They're even talking amongst one another. Okay, when we get there, you think, you know, probably asking, you think some of the soldiers will help us roll the stone back? How are we going to get the stone? What are we going to do? How are we going to get in there to anoint Jesus' body? They are expecting to find everything as it was on Friday night, including the dead body of Jesus. So therefore, we can't even accuse them of taking the body because they they realize as they look at themselves, we're not going to be able to push that stone back. It's going to be impossible for us. So they get there. There's no soldiers. 
stones not just barely moved, it's moved. There's no soldiers. The seal has been broken. And there's nobody around. And they could see this from a distance. First thing that they could see. Listen how Matthew records it. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. You see, Jesus had been buried as most first century citizens of Jerusalem were. Outside the city in a cave cut in limestone. Matthew calls it in 2760 um, a great stone. Mark calls it large stone. It was big. And from what we can understand of finding these kind of stones and tombs in Israel, they weighed anywhere from one and a half to two tons. If you're going, okay, what does that mean? Well, how about an, a small elephant or a car? That's, that's, that's what we're talking about weight-wise. Now, we could go out in the parking lot and put a car in neutral, and, and an elementary kid could kind of get it rolling a little bit. But you leave that car in park, it's going to be difficult to move. You're going to have to have multiple people t- to push and move that. So this was not something that the women could have done. It's not something that one person could have done to move the stone. What they would do is this. So picture this large stone that weighs, let's just say, one and a half tons. They would always, in that day, have where the graves were. It would be on an incline so that they would roll the stone. So when it came down, there would be a place here where the stone would stop there. And it would roll downhill. And the weight of the stone would keep it fixed against the front part of the entrance to the grave. So that would have been the case for Jesus. There's another theory that people came up. It's called the swoon theory. It's a ridiculous theory. Um, Somebody ought to be embarrassed if they ever looked in their face whoever came up with this originally. And this is what the swoon theory says. That Jesus didn't really die on the cross. That they took his body down. I remind you as well that before they took his body down, they took a spear and they ran it up through his side and and if you ever thought that they just like stuck it in a side, that's not what they did. They went upwards toward the heart. It pierced this water that's around the heart. And if you remember, the text says blood and water flowed out from his side where the spear was. So not only did, he, did they beat him almost to death, not only did he carry his cross, not only did he get nailed to the cross and hang there for six hours, they also ran the spear up his side. So the swoon theory says this, that Jesus didn't really die when he was put into the tomb. He resuscitated during the night in the coolness of the tomb. And he pushed the stone away and he let himself out. Another key piece of the ridiculousness of this, he is wrapped up like a mummy with 75 pounds of aloe and spices on him. He would have had to have gotten himself out of that And the text is going to tell us in a moment that his grave clothes were not cut. They just were there in a cocoon-like shape, indicating that somebody had been inside of them, but was no longer inside of them. So that's been one of the things that people have said, Jesus did that himself. There's no way he would have had the energy as a human being 
to do that and having the guards on the other side guarding the tomb to have not heard him push the tomb open and walk out and the seal be broken. So that's the stone that was there. One more thing about the stone. John writes his gospel 35 to 40 years, 35 to 40 years after the other three gospels had been written. And part of me wonders if he wanted to clarify something because John ran to the tomb that day and he saw it. When John writes that the tomb had been taken away, the Greek words for taken away literally mean this, something that's picked up and carried away. John indicates that not just was the stone rolled to the side, but it was literally picked up and was a bit away from the tomb. That's what the Greek words mean that John wrote there. He was an eyewitness of this. So the stone tells us about Jesus rising from the dead. I think I have two more, three more, real quick. Let's talk about the tomb for a second. Luke records this, Luke 24, 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So the women arrive on Sunday morning. This heavy stone had already been rolled away. John says had been kind of taken away. It was a little bit different and unique as John speaks about it. The clear indication is the angel had moved the stone And the reason the stone had been moved, by the way, Jesus was already gone, wasn't so that he could get out. It was for what reason? So that we could look inside and see that he was not there. So on this Sunday morning, you have multiple people looking inside the tomb, seeing grave clothes and seeing there was no longer a body in there from eyewitnesses who were aware of what had happened on Friday night exactly where he was put. And the angels say, why are you looking for the one who has risen from the grave? He is not here. Now I want you to see what's taking place at this point and where we are. We have gone from outside of the tomb, looking at it at a distance as the women walked up. They immediately saw the stone's gone, seal is broken, no soldiers. They go up to the tomb, they look inside, no evidence of a body, something has happened. And so we have gone from the outside to pass where the guards are, to pass where the broken rope and the seal is, past the stone to inside the tomb where angels are sitting. And guess what? There is no body. He is not there because he has risen. The text indicates this truth. The earliest Jews in Jerusalem who were not believers and affirmers of who Jesus is in the initial days and the initial day of the resurrection, they all knew there was a missing body in an empty tomb. Everybody knew it. Everybody that was connected to it knew this reality. So they established a stolen body theory. The fact that they even did that reveals that they knew that the grave 
no longer contained a body. And so they had to figure out what to do. So they substitute, as the world does still today, a lie for the truth. I want you to keep in mind as well that the religious leaders hated Jesus. Hated him. So as they make up a story, they are even acknowledging that the tomb is what? It's empty. There is no body to put forth to stop the story. Their very lie is evidence of the empty tomb, straight from the source of those who rejected Jesus. They knew what had happened, so the lies around the life of Jesus then and the lies around the life of Jesus are still present even today. Two more. I could go on, but it's Easter and we need to eat and all the stuff that we have to do. The clothing around Jesus is fascinating. Maybe one of the biggest pieces of evidence. When you truly look at the Greek word for the clothing, it describes, so I want you to, I want you to picture when the Jews would bury people in their clothes, they would bury people in their clothing, and then they would wrap them with linen strips. By the way, I guess Mark is going to become a magician. Did you notice that earlier? And so I'm going to do a little... So they would, they would wrap the bodies. Nicodemus and Joseph anoint Jesus' body with 75 pounds. That sounds like a lot of stuff. I, I've never anointed a body. Sounds like a lot. Sounds like a lot of work. And this would have soaked into the clothing. So not only do you have the body of Jesus, let's say he's 6 foot, 180 pounds, 75 pounds of aloe and spices and his clothing and the wrapping not cooperating, you're talking dead weight, you're talking heaviness. The scripture tells us, when you look at the Greek, that when John goes into the tomb, as a matter of fact, listen to what John says. Um, So Peter and John, if you remember, have a race to the tomb after the women go back and say, hey, um, seen the Lord. It says, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. So Peter goes in first, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with a linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then John steps into the tomb. And John writing about his eyewitness account says this in John 20, verse 8. He says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and John gives us insight into his faith. He said, He saw, or I saw, and I believed. Right then and there. What did he believe? What did he see? So I want you to picture Jesus in his clothing, wrapped, his body now gone out of that clothing, and it coming down just a little bit. So it, it gives every indication that a body had been in there, but there's no way a body's in there anymore because it's sunk a little bit. Nothing's been cut. And when John sees it, he says, I don't get it all. The next verse says that they were still a little bit confused. But John says, I believed. He was not in the tomb. He had risen from the dead. Everything inside the tomb was orderly. 
Think about this for a moment. It's, I find it fascinating. Jesus comes up out of his grave clothes, just comes up out of them. I don't, I don't know if he sits up out of them. He's got a transformed, glorified body. He can walk through walls later. He can rise up out of his grave clothes, and he does. It seems he has this thing on his head that they wrapped his head with, and he takes it off, and he folds it, and he sets it down neatly. That's not an indication of a robber wouldn't fold clothing and neatly. What would they do? They would take it off and just throw it. But everything in the tomb was orderly. It wasn't chaos. The empty tomb leads John to believe and to know exactly what he is seeing. Here's the last one. When I was 10... My parents made a mistake. Parents make mistakes. Mine made a mistake. In the summer of, when would that have been? 1975-ish, 76-ish. They took me to see the movie Jaws. For all of my life when I've gone to an ocean, that same shark is swimming in every ocean and it's after me. I always have a little bit of nervousness. There's a great scene in that movie where they, they've all gone out. They're in the boat. It's all the men, and they're hunting the shark. And they're sharing their scars. Do you remember the scene where they're lifting up their pants legs, and they're pulling up their side, and, and one of them points to his heart and says, do you see this? And they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, this is, I think her name was Mary Ellen. She broke my heart and his heart was scarred. And they're talking about scars. I, I find it really incredibly interesting what Jesus does the night that he was raised from the dead. So in the afternoon, he walks multiple miles. Y'all know where Belk is at uh, 75 and... El Dorado down there. From our parking lot to Belk is is about the distance to Emmaus. Jesus walked that far with these two guys on the day of the resurrection. And he just unfolded scripture. I would have loved to have been part of that walking Bible study. But they get to Emmaus and they realize it's Jesus and he just disappears. Well, he shows up later that night. Those guys leave Belk and come all the way back to Life Point. And they find the disciples and say, y'all are not going to believe this. We spent all day today with Jesus. He's alive. What the women said, it's true. And then all of a sudden, Jesus just shows up in the room. And I want you to listen to what he does. When you show up in the room and you don't open a door or ring a doorbell... You need to say these words, peace be with you, because you'll panic everybody in the room. So Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And I want you to note what he does. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Why? The scars were going to be a reminder of what had been done, and they were proof of who it was. That's Jesus. Now, he looked different. His transformed body looked different. Do you remember Mary turned around and and Jesus is standing there and she thinks he's the gardener? She looks right at him and thinks he's the gardener. So he's 
he's still Jesus, but he looked a bit different. He's got a glorified body now. Thomas wasn't there. He comes back later and they're like, dude, missed it. I don't know where you were. I don't know what was going on. I don't know if you were eating cereal somewhere or what the deal was, but the Lord showed up and Thomas is like, no, don't believe you. And I'm not going to believe it unless I can touch it. So Thomas has to wait eight days. Jesus shows up unannounced and says, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And when Thomas saw the scars, we don't know if he touched them. Most likely he did. But listen to what he said. My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to them, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And if Luke and John don't tell us about the scars of Jesus, we might could conclude that Jesus' glorified and resurrected body wouldn't have any scars at all. And as I thought about this this week, his scars, in a sense, from a human perspective, seemed a bit out of place. This is Jesus, and I want him to look perfect. Because he is perfect. After all, Jesus' body was clearly different, indication after his resurrection. And when you think about heaven, you think about everything's going to be new in heaven, and we're going to be like him. Scars from a human view seem a bit out of place for heaven. And we're a bunch of other glorified bodies that we're going to have one day are going to be with him. So then I thought a little further. And I want to call our attention to the first reference of Jesus as the Lamb in the book of Revelation. There are 28 references from Revelation 5 to chapter 22 that say Jesus is the Lamb. He's not called the Lamb until Revelation chapter 5. Listen to this. John has this great vision. There's panic in heaven. There's this scroll and nobody's worthy to open it. And he's weeping and an angel says, it's okay, it's okay. And John looks and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb and it was standing as though it had been slain. I want you to think about the strangeness of those words. He sees a lamb standing as if it's alive and yet he looks at the lamb and it's clear that the lamb has been slain. Now John growing up in Israel would have seen in his lifetime hundreds and hundreds of lambs being slain. He would have known the marks when lambs were sacrificed. So now John has this vision and he sees a lamb standing and the lamb has every indication of scars as if it had been killed, it was slain, and yet it's standing. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God gone out into all the earth. There are three more references after 
Revelation 5, 6 of Jesus in Revelation being called the Lamb who was slain. 27 total times, 28 total times in Revelation of Jesus being the Lamb. Now hear this as we finish. I've got some scars on my body. I've still got one right here. I was 12 riding a mini bike and went through a barbed wire fence. That's not recommended either, but I did it. And I still, I've got other scars from surgeries. You have scars. When we get to heaven, there's only going to be one who has scars. You see, when he makes us new, we're, we're, we're going to be like him, but these scars are going to be gone. There's one that's going to have scars. And for all of eternity, his scars will say to us, look what he did for sinners. Look how he rescued them. John the Baptist said to his followers, Behold, Jesus walked by one day, right there, there he is. That's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Christ takes his wounds and took his wounds with him to heaven when he left, and they will remain. I don't know about you, but I want this body to be transformed And I think it will. You see, our scars are reminders of the old things. Of the pain of this life. And the heaviness of this life. His scars shout that he got us to the new heaven and the new earth. And that he alone is worthy. So I'm not saying today that you you and I are not going to get an upgraded look. I think we are. but Jesus' scars will remain. And His scars will be visible, healed wounds, and they will be the forever story of the wondrous glory that is connected to who He is. That He's the one who died, and He's the one who was raised, and He's the one that ascended. He's the one who is coming back, and He is the one that will destroy His enemies, and He will reign. And he will bring us all the way to a place called the new heavens and the new earth. Last thought. So the cross and the resurrection remind you and I that God has done the work that you and I cannot do. We cannot do it. So therefore we need to quit trying to do it because we cannot do it. He has done the work. And the invitation is to come to Him to believe and to walk with Him and to just live in light of this wondrous work that He has done. And eventually, He is going to bring us all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. And this idea of a new heavens and a new earth is not a New Testament idea. It started in the Old Testament. And because of the cross... And because of the resurrection, God has the power, He has the worthiness, the holiness, the righteousness, because of who He is, 
to, to make all of this happen and to bring you and I all the way to himself. And so I want to remind you and I that yes, there is a new heaven and a new earth that's coming that John writes about in Revelation. But Isaiah said this, 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So are we going to have scars in heaven? I don't think so. Because I want you to think of, I want you to hear what this says. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. God is going to do such a complete work when He creates the new heavens and the new earth and our transformation that we will not remember the pain of this life. How hopeful is that? That we won't remember the months and the years and the struggle that we had of, of mental darkness, of wrestling with life. Or the breakup of a family that is devastating and lasts the scars that are there. So I want to remind you in 2023 on this Easter Sunday morning, Resurrection Day, that those that have been redeemed by the work of Christ, they have been raised to new life because of his resurrection. They have been born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. God has put a spirit in us, deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance that we're going to get to a new heaven and a new earth one day and we're not going to remember the struggle here. We will spend eternity beholding the scars of our King. And we will be reminded that He is worthy. He is worthy. What hope we have this morning because of Jesus. Let's pray.